0: This is Weekly Signals Interviews, broadcasting every Tuesday morning, 8 to 9, Pacific Time, on KUCI 88.9 FM, Irvine, California, on the web at KUCI.org. I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Caspar. As wealth has become more concentrated in the U.S., the economy has in turn become more recklessly speculative, jeopardizing not only the prospects of ordinary Americans, but the solvency of the entire system. In his new book, The Squandering of America, How the Failure of Our Politics Undermines Our Prosperity, our guest today, Robert Cutner, points to the to a consolidation of political and economic power by a narrow elite as the obstacle blocking the ability of government to restore broad prosperity to the majority of citizens. A co-founder and co-editor of the American Prospect magazine, Kuttner's column for the Boston Globe was awarded the John Hancock Award for Excellence in Business and Financial Journalism. His other books include Everything for Sale, The Virtues and Limits of Markets, and Ticking Time Bombs, The New Conservative Assaults on Democracy. Robert Kuttner, welcome to Weekly Signals.
1: Hey, thanks for having me.
0: How are you doing today?
1: Well, I'm cold. I'm, uh, I'm up here in Boston. But uh, other than that, I'm, I'm happy. The book uh, is, uh, seems to be well-timed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: Well, yeah, I was just going to mention that, too, because yesterday President Bush comes on, on the air and tells us all that uh, well, there's some storm clouds, but really no concerns about the economy. It looks pretty good to him. How far is he off?
1: Well, yeah, wasn't it Bush who said that, uh, you know, they didn't believe in reality-based foreign policy? I, I don't think they believe in reality-based <laughs> no. economics. No, this is, I can say flatly, this is the most serious financial crisis since the Great Depression. Mm. And, and unless they get serious about addressing it, it's, it's, it's going to get worse. And it is the result of uh, deregulation. It's the result of pretending that a market economy can just regulate itself, doesn't need government. And it's funny that the people who are saying that are lined up at the treasury right now to get bailed out. So I think the whole premise that markets don't need government that's been blown away.
2: Mm-hmm. You, you said something uh in a uh, in your testimony in front of I believe it was a Senate or a it was a House or Senate committee. Uh, Barney Frank's uh, committee uh, on financial. Uh, 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 so it was a, okay, so it was a co- services, yep. and where you, where you said uh I'm chilled as I'm sure you are, Mr. Chairman, every time I hear a public official or a Wall Street eminence uttering the reassuring words, "the economic fundamentals are sound," and uh, this, this, it, let's and you and I'm. It sounds like this is what you're saying. And by the way, there is a distinction I think you make, which I want. I think it's important, which is the economy is fine. It's the financial markets. Is, is that well?
1: Yeah, but. Um... Sooner or later, what goes on in the financial markets spill over into the rest of the economy. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I mean, there there are two big parts to this story. One is that for 30 years, ordinary people have become uh, less financially and uh, economically secure, uh, more in jeopardy of losing income, losing jobs, losing health coverage, losing retirement benefits. So that's been kind of a slow bleed. Uh, I think it worsened under Bush. But then, on top of that, the same belief that government should just get out of the way that, that led to this widening insecurity for regular people has uh, allowed Wall Street to turn into a casino and has jeopardized the solvency of the whole economy. And I think, had they acted quickly to either prevent the subprime mess, which they should have done. The regulations were on the books; they just didn't enforce them. Or had they acted quickly to contain it, you would not have the kind of spillover that we're seeing in the rest of the economy. But they didn't believe in regulation. They didn't yeah. believe in government intervention. And even to this day, uh, Henry Paulson, the Secretary of the Treasury, is you know trying to just call people into his office and fix it voluntarily. And you can't fix it voluntarily.
2: Well, you see signs of tr- uh, of real trouble. Uh, I I know that uh, I read this was a couple of months ago about a fund that some of these the bigger houses, the bigger brokerage houses, and and others were contributing to sort of a an emergency slush fund, if if you will. Um, and that certainly for me was the first sign that things maybe not as as well off as as they're saying they are.
1: Well, let let's take subprime, and this is complicated, but let me yeah. let me do it. Uh, and its basics. So, you take people whose main trait is that they're unlikely to be able to pay back the loan, and um, you, in this case, is an unregulated mortgage company that is put in business by a Wall Street investment bank, which advances them the capital, and you make loans at teaser rates, which then snap back to 11 or 12 percent, and um, the the wise guys who who engineer all this. They think they're going to make money either way. I mean, either they make money on the fees or they make money because the guy can't pay the loan back and they get his house. What happened was that the housing market stopped inflating. So in a lot of cases, the collateral had less value than the value of the loan. Mm -hmm. And um, for a while, they just took this very dubious uh, financial paper. They sold it off to pension funds. Then they started smoking their own dope. They, they started thinking, hey, we should keep some of this paper for ourselves. So they set up these off-balance sheet-affiliated uh, entities, so-called. And um, when a lot of these investments turned bad, it wasn't just the pension funds that the, that the banks sold it off to, but it was the banks themselves who got into trouble. So now you got, you know the biggest banks, Citibank, Citigroup, and Merrill Lynch, um, taking huge hits. And there's a town in Norway that can't pay its school teachers because they bought some of this garbage. There's two banks in Germany who are in trouble because they bought some of it. There's a bank in Switzerland that had to sell 10% of itself to um, the Singapore Sovereign Wealth Fund because it got implicated in it. So, uh, you know, all mm-hmm. of these asset bubbles are interconnected in a global economy. And it's starting to reach the point where it's having real spillover onto the rest of the economy. Mm-hmm. Credit. Is more difficult to get even for sound borrowers.
2: Well, you're, yeah, you're definitely seeing more and more of this uh, insecurity. And when you, when banks, lending institutions, financial institutions start to lose confidence in each other, this is right. this is what we're seeing. Is that what you? Yeah, seeing?
1: and uh, I think the other thing is um, the Treasury and the Fed kind of are the gang that can't shoot straight. They've they've just been behind the curve. They've tried to do it with voluntary fixes, and it keeps deepening. And I think that's what happens when you put people in charge of the government who don't believe that the government has much of a role to play.
2: Yeah. And
1: I, I go ahead.
2: No, I'm so uh, well. I'm sorry. I uh, there there. Were, I just saw uh, a couple of weeks ago Charles Schumer was in was trying to get some traction on an investigation into something called the FHL, which is a federal housing loan office or some kind of a I didn't even know about this apparently it's a sort of a, the federal government's way of facilitating the home market the home buying market and there are 11 sections in the country and apparently the Atlanta branch had lent land, landed um to uh a countrywide 51 billion dollars
1: yeah so see, th- the the problem is that the the the, fo- the foxes have gotten control of the chicken coop so here's yeah. countrywide uh, the biggest and probably the shadiest, the subprime lenders, and gets into trouble. You're, you're referring to the Federal Home Loan Bank System. It, it was set up in, in the 30s to help, you know, the Jimmy Stewart kind of savings and loan, help extend credit to people. These were nonprofit institutions. And the wise guys got control of them. Yeah. And they, they took uh, government institutions like the Home Loan Bank System that were set up to make it easier for ordinary people to buy houses. And use them into uh, use them as instruments of uh, of speculation, but I think the other thing I was eager to talk about is is how to connect the dots back to the politics right. there 's a different way of running the economy it 's the way that we ran the economy in in the forty years after the Great Depression, beginning with Roosevelt, where the economy is structured so it serves ordinary people it doesn 't just serve fat cats and uh, That started being assaulted big time in the 70s, and uh, that was the era when uh, deregulation started. It was the era when Carter uh, decided he didn't much like government either, even though he was a Democrat. Uh, And then Reagan comes in and puts it all together, and so for 27 years, we've, we've had a country that doesn't use government to help ordinary people. It uses government to help fat cats get fatter, and we're now seeing the results. And what's troubling is that... Both parties, certainly half of the Democratic Party, is dependent for its campaign money on the same big guys who have too much influence on the rest of the system. So too few politicians, even of the opposition party, are saying that a fundamentally different way of running the system is possible. I think if they were saying that, uh, they'd get elected in a landslide because people are hurting. And even if uh, a lot of politicians aren't uh, affirming... The economic anxiety that ordinary people feel—it's uh, there, it's being felt—and when you get a when you when you get a politician who comes along and um, speaks to what people who are, are, are actually experiencing, um, the message really resounds. I mean, in, in, in 06, every single Democrat—there were six of them—who took back a Republican Senate seat ran as a populist. They they didn't run as a Wall Street candidate, and uh, so. It's encouraging. I I don't hear this yet enough at the presidential level because I think so many of these candidates are so dependent on big money that they're reluctant to talk progressive economics. Mm-hmm.
0: We're speaking with Robert Cutner. The book is The Squandering of America, How the Failure of Our Policies, Our Politics, I'm Sorry, Undermines Our Prosperity. Now, as far as politics go um, and Democrats go, what's your opinion of Hillary Clinton? How does she stack up in the... Uh, Within all
1: this, well, I think Hillary's kind of a, a centrist. Um, mm-hmm. I don't, I don't see her proposing the kind of really bold change that the country needs. Um, I can't quite figure out Obama. I, I kind of like him as a person. I like him. I like his life story. I like his values. But I think the idea that at a time of crisis like this, you can just kind of be above politics and be a bridge builder. Um, I'm, I'm not sure that's what's called for. I think Edwards, of the first-tier candidates, comes closest. Mm-hmm. Um, but, of course, because he's not raising a lot of money on Wall Street, he's barely competitive financially.
0: Uh, is that where the, where the trick lies there, raising money on Wall Street? Because Obama seems to be raising a fair amount of money there.
1: Yeah, both mm-hmm. of them are. I mean, Hillary I and Obama say. are both raising a huge amount of money on Wall Street. Um, but... but uh, I think the, the reason I'm not totally pessimistic is I, I think six months from now you're, you're going to hear whoever the Democratic nominee is speaking a lot more boldly because I think this financial crisis is going to deepen and I think events are going to force uh, more boldness.
0: Is, is there something? Is there a, a turning point you see coming up? Is there something in in, in the future that you can foretell that uh, would cause that to happen, or is it just when the when they uh, when they finally get down to the the chosen few in the uh, in the political process.
1: Well, I think on the economic front, several. It's almost like a perfect storm. I mean, mm-hmm. I I think cutting interest rates again and again and again is not fixing the problem. Right. I mean, when when, when there's, uh, economists say there's a difference between a liquidity problem and a solvency problem. A liquidity problem is that you know um, there, there's a crisis of confidence and there's there's not enough uh, credit flowing. A solvency problem uh, is, is when um, you owe more than you own, and the collateral uh, turns out to be wor- worth less than the than the loan, yeah. and that's that you can't fix with with cheap interest rates. You 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 can't cause a house to suddenly be worth twenty thousand dollars more just by lowering interest rates. Um, so you got that. I think you're starting to see a, an uptick in inflation, mm-hmm. uh, food inflation. Mm-hmm. And uh, energy inflation, uh, the dollar is going down the drain because every time you cut interest rates, um, the dollar is worth a little bit less in, in, in foreign markets. And so you could very well have a repeat of the so-called stagflation of the 70s where you have uh, you know recession combined with inflation, and consumer purchasing power is going to take a big hit. Yeah. Uh, one of the most chilling statistics I read recently, this was actually a study by Alan Greenspan, about 8% of all of the consumer spending between 2000 and 2005 was home equity withdrawals. Yeah. And if housing is no longer appreciating and interest rates are going up uh, on, on home equity loans uh, because banks are nervous about who they're lending to, you can't keep using your home as a piggy bank. Right. So I think when all this stuff comes together, which it is starting to do, uh, the Democratic nominee is going to realize that, this is serious, and uh, it calls for bolder action.
2: There, there is there is definitely uh, a point at which, at which the the economy cannot can sustain this kind of uh, this kind of a hit and and st- still be standing. And you you have identified in the past sort of three. Do we want to talk about, talk about the Great Depression? Because you, the the uh, at some point we're we're mirroring a lot of the the. Uh, uh, the trends yeah, that were we taking are, place and, I, I
1: think uh, uh, the reason that we're not going to have another Great Depression is that the right wing did not succeed in getting rid of all of the New Deal. Yeah. So you have deposit insurance, one of FDR's great contributions. Uh, no matter how bad things get, you can get your money out of the bank because mm-hmm. the government guarantees it. Mm-hmm. And uh, in the 30s, they strengthened the Federal Reserve to give the Federal Reserve all kinds of tools that it didn't have in 1929 to be a lender of last resort. Uh, The Fed has done something unprecedented in the last week. It has said to banks, we'll take any kind of reasonable collateral if you're short of money. No, Uh, Never did that before. So it means that the taxpayer may ultimately eat the cost if some of this stuff goes bad, but unlike in the 30s, the whole banking system doesn't collapse. So we may be in for some rough times, but I don't think we're going to have a depression. On the other hand, If those rough times are not going to hit ordinary people disproportionately, there's going to have to be um, more public outlay. Uh, We we may have to have a lot more government investment so that the unemployment rate doesn't go up. I mean, this is going to call for real vision and real uh, boldness, but I don't think it's going to be a a Great Depression. I think it's going to be an intensification of the uh, economic insecurity that has been afflicting uh, working Americans for 30 years.
2: We're speaking with Robert Cutner. The book is uh, "The Squandering of America: How Poli- How the Failure of Our Politics Undermines Our Prosperity." Uh, there is there is something uh, to all of this in the sense that Wall Street and the investors and the hedge funds and all of the rest of it never pay a price. There, there, isn't that part of the problem here? Is that there? There's relatively little that impedes them from doing, uh, the, you know, inflating the the value of things. And we, don't we need a better uh, don't we need better mechanisms to essentially hold them accountable?
1: Sure, you, you need uh, regulation. And in the 30s, um, you got regulation. I mean, I, I went back and did a lot of research on the, the kind of scams that had gone on in the 20s that caused the great crash and the details were complicated but they really boiled down to three kinds of abuses conflicts of interest on the part of insiders too much speculation with borrowed money and lack of transparency where people didn't know what this stuff was really worth they were just taking the word of their friendly stockbroker or their friendly banker and in the thirties most of that was shut down and in the seventies and eighties and nineties they repealed most of the protections and so Enron and WorldCom and Global Crossing and the subprime mess, it's the same three abuses. Mm-hmm. It's, it's insiders uh, manipulating uh, regular people. Uh, it's a lack of transparency. Nobody nobody really knew what the bonds backed by these subprime mortgages were worth until somebody tried to sell one. And uh, it's it's much too much speculation with borrowed money. So you got to put the genie back in the bottle again. It's going to require a whole new round of um Regulation, so that so that the speculative uh, instinct doesn't uh, wreck the real economy.
2: Well, didn't we get a preview of this uh, in the '80s when we saw savings and loans collapse? And yeah, did, we did, and it's an interesting story. I yeah. mean,
1: what happened was early in the Reagan era, the savings and loan lobby. Succeeded in getting legislation through Congress, giving them the right to be much more speculative and so you know savings and loans used to be sleepy affairs you you took in savings at uh, at three uh, percent you lent out mortgage money at six percent uh, you made uh, a little bit of money and it all worked and uh, and then they decided that they wanted they wanted to make more money, and so it ended up costing the taxpayers about $400 billion thanks to deposit insurance. But the flip side of deposit insurance is if the government's going to be liable uh, to, to protect depositors in the event of a uh, bank going bust, you've got to prevent uh, excess speculation on the front end. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, you and the taxpayers are just holding the bag on the back end. And in '89, after it cost the taxpayers $400 billion, Congress said, okay, we're going to re regulate these guys so they can't do it again. And they just set up shop as unregulated mortgage companies. And that's where subprime came from. So, unlike in the 80s, the regulators gave them a free pass. I, I, I mean, the, mm-hmm. there was one guy on the Fed, now deceased, uh, Ned Gramlich, who was warning about this. The head of the FDIC was warning about it. But. Um, the Federal Reserve didn't do anything, Congress didn't do anything, um, the Treasury didn't do anything. Why? Because the belief was, if the market invented it, must be good, otherwise the market wouldn't invent it. Mm-hmm. Now that's just a recipe for taking down the whole
2: economy. Yeah. Well, and then the, then, then, as we move into the 90s here and, and into the new century, we have this new beast, private equity hedge funds. And the, this the the, the uh, hallmark of these is, is that they're unregulated as well. Totally
1: unregulated, totally non-transparent, and the reason that private equity can make so much money is that they take over companies with borrowed money that's tax-deductible. They put up very, very little of their own money. I mean, you can you can play this game by putting up as little as 3 or 4% of your own money, and supposedly the private equity guys come in, they look at a company that's not being managed well, and they apply some unique special sauce and they turn it around <laughs> it's mostly myth i mean what they do is they come in they get a big tax break from all the money they borrow um they slash wages they slash pension benefits they sell off assets they extract whatever they can into their own pockets and then they try and find somebody else to sell it to if you put them on a business tomorrow morning the economy would be better off and um and hedge funds uh... Also, a, a creature of a loophole in the securities laws, they don't have to disclose anything, yeah. and uh, the leverage ratios, the, the amount of borrowed money that they use, is astronomical. Um, derivatives, which are which are securities that don't represent anything real, their their bets on other securities, is what a lot of hedge funds traffic in, and um, you know, there's now nine thousand hedge funds uh with about 1.7 1.8 trillion dollars and um
2: unregulated money
1: completely unregulated completely untransparent completely untransparent there's no disclosure and i think as we saw in the subprime mess a lot of these guys don't even understand that the the exotic financial instruments that they create and again it doesn't do anything constructive for the real economy i'm not against venture capital i think venture capital is a great thing where you know, people pool their money and they look for entrepreneurs who invented something new, and they they they, they take a risk, they invest in in, in somebody who uh, they think is going to is going to produce something great. That's not what hedge funds do, mm-hmm. and for the most part, private equity is not investing in startups. Private equity is uh, is is buying and selling mature companies, and the, the the whole notion that this whole financialization of everything is necessary to have the uh, economy operate efficiently is just one of these great myths that happens to serve very wealthy speculators.
2: What I keep hearing in all of this is leverage, leverage, leverage. I that it just seems like it's so much of what we're talking about is money that's being leveraged into some perception of it being worth a lot more than it actually might be. So That's it, that's
1: it, it's gambling yeah. and uh, yeah, leverage leverage works great on the upside, doesn't work so great on the downside. That's why they limited margin after the crash at 29. Warren Buffett, uh, maybe the only honest man in this whole game, had a great line. He said, y- you never know who's swimming naked until the tide goes out.
2: <laughs> and well' that is the tide's going out.
1: And so a lot of these bets are going bad and people who say they don't believe in government are are lined up to get bailed out. That's and, the thing. Uh,
2: that's the thing with the feds. So they bail them out and that's the Yeah, problem. they
1: bail them out, but it's not costless because whenever the Fed cuts interest rates to bail these guys out below what they would otherwise cut them, the dollar takes a hit and then we pay the cost of the cheaper dollar uh at the pump, we we pay it in our home heating oil, we pay it when we try and buy Imported products, we we, we we pay it when the whole country's on fire sale.
2: Well, we pay it when insurance, uh, what it costs for personal insurance now. Yeah, and it. and it, that's definitely,
0: and that's one of the reasons, main reasons for bankruptcies now. Yeah. Well, let's now try, oh, I ahead. want to know, when the tide's going out, what keeps you optimistic? There you go. Is, this, is there something out there that keeps you uh, having faith in this?
1: Well, uh, I think this is an incredibly resilient country, and we've survived worse. And... Um, you know, the, the uh, as I was saying, um, at the level of House and Senate races, uh, yeah. Democrats who got elected last time, really almost every one of them ran as economic populists. The, the, there was a ballot initiative in Florida in 2004, the, the year that Kerry lost to Bush, uh, to raise the minimum wage by a buck, and Florida is not exactly a left-wing state. But uh, that initiative carried every single county in Florida, and it won a million votes more than Bush. It won two million votes more than Kerry. And if Kerry had been on a few street corners with pickets, raised the minimum wage, he might have been president. So I yeah. think there's a there's a hunger for a politics that addresses what's going on, and if leadership rises to the occasion, we can surmount this.
2: Yeah. I, I think there is reason to be optimistic, too. Uh, I do think that... Uh, People, it's funny. It's it's like you t- turn on TV and it and the chatter class is telling you something completely different than your than your life experience. And Boy, isn't it. that the truth? And uh, and I can't tell you how many times I've heard, like an Edwards or somebody, raise this sort of two Americas idea, and and they go absolutely nuts on this class warfare thing. It's well, a constant. Look at,
1: look at health insurance. Yeah. I mean, there is yeah. not a person. Who doesn't have a story about himself or herself or about their family, about, you know, somebody who uh, lost their insurance when they lost their job or they couldn't get insurance because of a pre-existing condition or they had insurance and something wasn't covered or they knew somebody who went bankrupt because of medical bills. And yet um, we don't quite have 1st tier politicians saying it's a very simple fix. Uh, national health insurance, if it's good enough for old people, it's good enough for everybody, and it would save a lot of money, Uh, it would cut out the insurance industry middlemen. But I think a lot of Democrats have been traumatized by the influence of all these interest groups with big campaign contributions, and sometimes it takes a real crisis to change politics, and I think this is one of those moments.
2: Well, I I think you're right, and uh, as we move closer to the presidential uh, election, I think... uh, it's going to become the issue. Um, it's already in polling, uh, polling as the number one issue with the electorate. So there is some there is some hope ahead. Uh, Robert Kuttner, uh, Kuttner, I want to thank you so much for coming here uh, to uh, speak with us here on Weekly Signals. The book is The Squandering of America. Thank you, Robert Kuttner.
1: Well, I appreciate you having me. If people want to learn more, it's squanderingofamerica.com. Excellent. Thanks. Right. Thank, thank you, you so much. Happy holidays.
0: To learn more about Weekly Signals interviews, including upcoming guests, or to download the podcast, visit our website at weeklysignals.com. And be sure to visit nathancallahan.com for daily readings and feature articles. Until next week, I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Kaspar, and this is Weekly
2: Signals.